Good morning. morning. It is a lovely day. (laughs) Let's go over a couple of announcements. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Psalms 30, verses 4 and 5. I go over the, uh, the announcements that we have. It's kind of old news there. Do we have any, any updates on individuals that are... that are ill. Clara May, has anybody got anything on Clara May, how she's doing? Any updates? The pastor just said that she's, she's kind of having a difficult time, so we want to keep her in our prayers for that. Tom, it's good to see you back with us. Grateful to have you, and Ashley. Okay. There's no other real messages today. Let's uh, go to our Scripture for meditation, taken from the book of Psalm, Psalm 30, page 867.
you stand with us as we go into our opening prayer? Dale, would you lead the opening prayer today? remain standing we take your brown hymnal this morning the brown and turn to number eight wait eight yes all right this, this is a, a different one eight in the hymnal rachel's the mic on <clears throat> yes it's on <laughs> Do we have a favorite hymn this morning that anyone would like? 
anybody? I have like several, but. All right, Naomi is the only hand that I see going once. <laughs> going to, okay, Naomi. Number four in the brown. And do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Besides no one else was picking? All right. Okay, number four in the brown.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and that would be page 1855 in the Pew Bible. When you're ready, if you would please stand with us as we read the scripture. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Father in heaven, may you add your blessing to this most holy and inspired word. In the name of Christ, amen. You take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 10 in the brown. Yes, Rachel, it's on. Number 10 in the brown.
be seated. Our scripture text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4, the first 16 verses. In beginning to consider essential elements of biblical worship, we talked last Sunday about the importance of public prayer as one of the key elements. We clarify the difference between the elements of worship, which we call the essentials, and the circumstances of worship, which are not essential. The elements are commanded or modeled for us in the scripture as part of worship. We don't have to guess about these. The circumstances are what I'm calling the functional aspects which make worship possible. For example, a place to gather, a place to sit, musical instruments, hymnals, computers, soundboards, and the like, none of which are essential. But which can facilitate worship when they are available. I mean, you can sit on the ground, right? But a pew or a chair will be more comfortable. It'll help you to keep your mind on what's being taught, not on your discomfort. But somewhere in the world tonight, God's people are sitting in dirt. And they're praying and reading the scriptures and worshiping God. And they don't have air conditioning and the sun's beating down on them. And probably the bugs are flying around their head. A lot of other distractions going on. Children crying. But they're there. And they're worshiping God. And their worship is acceptable. The element of public prayer in the worship service is the first we considered. We looked at the characteristics of this in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Solomon. They all had uh, have in their books of writing public prayer. Public prayer confesses both pub- private and public sin and both sin impediments to receiving favorable intervention from God. So it's very important that we admit to God that we're sinners. The proud who stand in the, you remember that account in the Gospel of Luke where the proud sinner <laughs> Is saying to God, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men or even like this sinner right here. And Jesus said, the man that confessed 
his sin and wouldn't even open his eyes and look up into heaven, went away forgiven, whereas the other one did not. So public prayer confesses both public and private sin. Secondly, we learn that public prayer praises God for who he is and for what he has done, be it physical or spiritual sustenance, the things that God has done. We should be a thankful people. I find in our society, more and more, the idea of being thankful. I mean, if people are thankful, they're not saying it. You know, they just kind of grumble under their breath and take life as it comes and let's move on. Thirdly, public prayer summons God's blessings and guidance on political issues of the day. We're told to pray for our leaders, for law enforcement, for the legislature, for the president, for the judges, for the courts. These all need God's oversight, whether they think they need it or not. We know they need it, and we are God's people, and we pray. And we are, by the way, told and commanded to pray for those in authority. Why? That it may go well with us. Why? Because they govern your life. That's how. They establish laws and rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. And it's not unusual that it affects Christianity because we have people in power and authority that don't know anything about God and don't care to know. So we looked at public prayer. So today I want to talk about the public reading of the scriptures, the public reading of the scriptures. As we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord to enable. We're so blessed, Lord, to um, have a personal copy of your word. But this hasn't always been. I mean, we can trace the history back, and we don't have to go back too far. When people did not have a personal Bible, we can trace it all the way back into the Old Testament times when the only ones that had a copy of the scriptures were the scribes, perhaps the Pharisees, the religious teachers. So how privileged we are today to live where we live in the country in which we live. So we talk today about the privilege of public reading. We ask that you would teach us how privileged we are and help us to be thankful because these privileges could be taken away from us in a heartbeat. And historically, that has happened many, many times. Maybe not in our country, but in other parts of the world. So please be with us and mostly help us to be thankful. In Christ's name, amen. Talking about the elements of worship, and we talked about public prayer last week. Today I want to talk about the public reading of the scriptures. The Apostle Paul's charge to Timothy, verse 13 of our text. Until I come, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Now you see there's some other things listed there. 
But the first on the list is devote yourself to the public reading of the scriptures. The first thing I want to know is why. Why would that be important? Well, one might argue convincingly, I think, that before the invention of the printing press with Johann Gutenberg in 1439, the only way for the masses to learn was to have someone read from a handwritten manuscript. Gutenberg's invention of mechanical, movable type started a printing revolution and is widely regarded as the most important event of the modern period. It played a key role in the development of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Age of the Enlightenment, and it laid the foundation for educating the masses. Among Gutenberg's many contributions to printing are the invention of a process for mass-producing movable type, the use of oil-based ink instead of water-based ink, the use of a wooden printing press similar to the agricultural screw presses of the period that were used to press out grapes. And his truly epical invention was the combination of these elements into a practical system which allowed the mass production of printing books and was economically viable for printers and readers alike. We just don't know how important this is, this was. Up to this time, how they had books. They had a scribe sitting there with a pen and an inkwell doing this, hand copying, tedious, long, arduous hours to just get one copy. What about all the people? Well, they just did without. And all of this would seem to support Paul's charge to Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of the scriptures as part of his ministry. I mean, think about it. If people do not have a personal copy of the scriptures, from where are they going to learn God's word? Or to say it another way, if only the scribes, if only the professional copyists of the day possessed copies of the scripture, how will the people hear God's word directly? Well, the biblical answer for Timothy's audience and for all audience dating back to Old Testament antiquity was to conduct a public reading of the scriptures in which, as noted, the people would gather in a specific location from which a scribe would open the scriptures and read it to them. We observed this last week when Ezra, a scribe, stood on a raised platform and we are told, so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who could understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others that could understand, so that'd be children. And all the people listened attentively 
to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands in response and said, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear, giving the meaning to the people so they could understand what was being read. The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing all the people said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the whole law. Nehemiah 8, verse 2 and following. This is quite revolutionary, isn't it? They don't have personal Bibles, but they have a scribe and he has a scroll. And they build a platform so he's high. And the people can see him and they can hear him. And he opens the scroll and he reads the word of God to them. We observe that there was instruction by the Levites, but only as the law had been publicly read by Ezra. So he reads it. The Levites are there among the group and say, do you understand what was said? Do you know what is being said here in this particular passage of Scripture? And this interaction was going on. So the principle is, hear God's word for yourself, then listen to the God-ordained ministers explain what's just been read. We follow that pattern even today, don't we? Thousands of years later. But public reading of the scripture predates Ezra by many hundreds of years. For example, at the entrance to the promised land, Moses was not permitted to enter because of his sin of striking the rock. You remember that? But God honored him by giving him one last opportunity to address the people. And we read, then Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years in the year for canceling debts, During the Feast of Tabernacle, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men, the women, and the children, and the aliens living among your towns, so that they can listen and learn. Boy, there's a phrase to keep in your mind. Listen and learn so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess Deuteronomy 31 verse 10 and following I like that phrase listen and learn Listen and learn. After Moses' death, 
after Israel had successfully crossed the Jordan and entered into Palestine, we are told of Joshua, the new leader, all Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests, who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instruction to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the aliens who lived among them. Joshua 8, verse 33 and following. Everybody heard the word of God. They didn't have a personal Bible, but their priests had a scrolls of the scriptures, so they would gather and they would read, open the scroll and read the law to them. And for a lengthy time, morning till noon, wow. Could you handle that? I don't know. In all this, we learn that, yes, there is a history in Judeo-Christian tradition of congregating the people of faith to a centralized geographical location for the explicit purpose of reading aloud the word of God to them. And when possible, and if present, the Levites or other spiritual leaders would then take time to explain the spiritual meaning of the words they had just read to the congregation. This certainly is one good reason for Paul's exhortation to Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of the scriptures. Even in Paul's day, think about this, in Paul's day, possessing a personal copy of the scriptures was not common. This is why Paul, writing from prison to Timothy, who is anticipating a visit to the apostle, Paul writes to him and he says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls. The word for scrolls is biblion, meaning a little book. Bring the cloak that I left with Troas and my scrolls, my little books, especially, he says, the parchments. That's a different word. That's the word membrano, which from which we get membrane, and it means the animal skins. They were more resilient, more long-lasting than parchment. You mean they wrote on animal skins? Yes, they wrote. They dried them out, and they wrote on the skins. 2 Timothy 4, verse 13. So what we have here is these were Paul's personal copies of the Scripture, which as a former Pharisee, he would have had 
the wherewithal to obtain such treasured renditions of the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, but what about now? Since all of us can buy a Bible in almost any bookstore or any box store in America, how does the public reading of the Bible serve our worship? Let me suggest some ways. The benefits of the public reading of God's word. Number one, hearing the reading causes us to remember that God has spoken and it is his spoken word that comprises the written word. I mean, ask yourself, where did we get the written word? started out as the spoken word. How many times have we read in the Bible phraseology like this? And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, the first three verses. Or again, then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you in his covenant the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two tables of stone. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees of the law, that you are to follow in the land, and you are as you cross the Jordan to possess it. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Oreb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Deuteronomy 4. Verse 12 and following. Coming to Exodus 6, verse 13. Now the Lord spoke. Yes, he spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So we could say the whole written history of the Exodus originated when God spoke his will to Moses and Aaron began with God speaking to his prophets. Isaiah says something very similar. He says, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything the people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you're to regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured Isaiah 8, verse 11 and following. And then what follows in Isaiah is the history of the Babylonian captivity is a record of God speaking judgment on the way word people of Israel. Jeremiah chimes in. This is the message the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to attack Egypt. Announce this in Egypt, proclaim it in Migdal, proclaim it in Memphis and Taphanes. Take your position and get ready, for the sword devours 
those around you. Jeremiah 46, verse 13 and 14. When we come to the New Testament, again, Jesus said, what shall we say? The kingdom of God is like. Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and it becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using parables. But when he was alone with the disciples, he explained everything. Mark 4, verse 13 following. Here he's teaching godly principles through the spoken medium of parables recorded in the gospel accounts. Say, well, what's your point? My point is this. Whatever you find written in your Bible, remember, brethren, that it began with the spoken word of God. The spoken word of God. Peter puts it this way, above all you must understand, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they carried, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Hearing the scriptures read publicly reminds us that God has spoken. God has spoken. Secondly, hearing the public reading of God's word verifies the teachings of God's ministers. As you know, during the Apostle Paul's ministry, he with his fellow ministers made their missionary journeys into Greco-Roman pagan world to spread the gospel of of Jesus Christ. On the second trip, his itinerary took him to the northern province of Greece called Macedonia. There he entered the town of Thessalonica. And Luke writes, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Acts 17, verse 1 and 2. The Jewish synagogues date back from the time to the time of the Maccabean Revolt, where occupation by Rome prevented devout Jews from worshiping in Jerusalem. Not to be undone, the Jews set up study centers in which they could pray and read the scriptures together. The word is synagogue, comes from the Greek word. And it means an assembly of Jews formally gathered together to offer prayers and listen to the reading and expositions of the scripture. Assemblies of that sort were held every Sabbath, every feast day, and afterwards also on the second and fifth days of every week. 
not just Saturdays. We have this biblical reference found in James' summation at the Jerusalem Council. He says, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Acts 15, verse 21. To this may be added Paul's statement to the church of Corinth concerning the gospel when presented to the Jewish population in general in his day. He writes, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. That veil has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when everyone, anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and following. And did we not read in the morning meditation today, Luke 4, 14 and following, that Jesus, during his ministry, went to the synagogue in Nazareth where he had been raised, and he stood up to read, it says. And someone handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and unrolling it, he read from Isaiah 61, which describes God's Spirit coming upon his Son, to preach the good news to the poor and to proclaim freedom for the prisoners to recover sight to the blind and so on. And Luke tells us the eyes of everyone were fastened on him and he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4 verse 21. You say, well, what's your point? My point is that even Jesus used the reading of the scriptures to pin his message about himself to the biblical standard. He read the scriptures and taught about himself. Returning now to Paul in his missionary endeavors, at Thessalonica he entered the synagogue, which is, as a Jew, he was privy to do that, he knew he could read the scriptures in this very public assembly and then by way of exposition teach on Jesus being the Messiah, which is what he did. Well, it had mixed results. We are told, and let me read it for you, some of the Jews were persuaded. They were. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Acts 17, verse 4. Uh, the other response was from jealous Jews, and they hired riffraff from the streets and caused a riot. So we had the two responses. Kind of says what happens even today when the gospel's preached, right? Some receive it, glad, happy about it. Others raise their fist and they're in your face. And they will have nothing to do with the proclamation of the good news. Well, the Apostle Paul and Silas slipped away at night 
to Berea, where again they entered a Jewish synagogue. And it says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Acts 17, verse 11. That's why they were considered more noble. They put to test. You know, gospel preachers don't mind if you put their message to test using the book. Go ahead. Let's see if their message aligns with the book. If it does, you're hearing the word of God. If not, then should you be listening? Should you be following that person? And so we know that the Jewish synagogues were places where people assembled for the express purpose of hearing the scriptures read aloud. We also know that Paul, following the pattern of the Lord himself, would use the scriptures read to teach the people about Christ. Thus, the public reading of the Bible and its prominent place in teaching connected and verified the truthfulness of the messenger's message. You have to remember, this is a day not everyone has a personal Bible. They have to gather where some scribe is going to open a scroll and read the scriptures to them. So they hear some preaching. They hear somebody say, oh, that's from Isaiah or whatever, and reading from the scrolls. To tell you the truth, this is why my style of preaching contains copious amounts of scripture. I want you to see that the content of my message is pinned to the ancient biblical record and thus from what God himself has spoken. There's way, way too much philosophizing in modern day preaching. I'm sure you do not need to hear my opinion on anything. What is more, it will not aid you in your quest to obtain salvation and find the Savior. It won't. You need to hear from God himself. There's only one way for that to occur, and that's by listening to the reading of his word, the Bible. The Bereans were commended, the scripture says, as more noble in character than the Thessalonians. And for one reason only. They proved Paul's preaching to be true by screening it through the inspired grid of God's written and read scriptures. You must do the same with every sermon you hear, every Christian author you read. Do not be enamored with speakers because of their popularity in Christendom or because you endure, enjoy their stories or you like their presentation or because they have a smile on their face. Be discerning. Measure everything by the measuring rod of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, <clears throat> would Jesus approve of what 
<coughs> what was just said. Would Jesus concur with that teaching? Would Jesus endorse or put his stamp of approval on what passes for the worship of God in our day? The public reading of the scriptures acts as a touchstone to call you back to divine truth. Come back to the word. Come back to the word. Is it the word of God? By meditation reading this morning. That's our starting point for worship. Secondly, hearing the audible and public proclamation of the scriptures instills saving faith in the lost. Wednesday prayer night here at the church. There are a lot of prayers prayed on behalf of lost loved ones and acquaintances. Those prayers are indicative of the heartfelt desire of every Christian that the people we care about discover and experience the same forgiveness, the same eradication of guilt, the same exemption from condemnation that we have experienced. So that's what we pray about on Wednesday night. We want the assurance of life eternal, the joy of presently living life, at peace with God, to come to our neighbors and our friends and especially to our family. I don't think that love would expect any less. Selflessness demands no less. So how's this going to happen? I mean, if we know anything about the unbelieving of our day, we know that they are in a bad way spiritually. They are not seeking. They're sunk. They're not searching for God. They're running away from God. They're not confused. They're condemned. Already in a state of condemnation. They're not considering Jesus They are blaspheming Jesus. They do not have a free will able to choose Christ if the evidence is convincing. Oh no. Listen to Paul. The mind of sinful man is death. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Wow, I don't think you hear much preaching about that. We hear, come to Christ. You can do it. Those controlled by the sinful nature, I'm reading scripture, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Romans 8, verse 6 and following. And the writer of Hebrews says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So put them together. When Paul teaches that the sinful nature cannot please God, which he does teach, Romans 8, verse 8, it's because there's no faith in God in that person.
Saving faith is not experience called faith. It's not the belief that, oh, I've heard this many times. It's not the belief that when I throw a light switch, the light will come on. That's not faith. That's human experience because you have thrown thousands of light switches in your lifetime. And generally, without exception, the light will come on. So that's experience. In fact, experience or knowledge has taught you to expect the light to come on when you throw the switch. But no unbeliever has ever consciously experienced the God of the Bible. So how do you know? Well, because everyone who experiences the God of the Bible is radically and forever changed for the good. And our prayer is for that good. We pray for salvation to come to our friends and our family, for people who cannot please God, who do not love God, and who, in fact, are his avowed enemies. Paul says so in Romans 8. They are dead towards God. They are fighting him at every step of the way. Okay, then how, if possible, is such a hostility ever to end? How can the faithless enemies of God be transformed into the friends and the children of God? Paul, working from the same Old Testament book of Isaiah that Jesus read in the synagogues of Nazareth, explains, Paul writes, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Read aloud, proclaimed. Either way, that's where faith comes from. And observe that while Paul refers to Isaiah saying, Lord, who has believed our report? It implies what Paul acknowledges in the next verse, verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did, says Paul. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Okay. Why then wasn't the Jewish community convinced of Jesus as Messiah and Savior? God through Isaiah boldly says why. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Oh. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Romans 10, verse 20 and 21. So what he's saying here is that while Israel heard, audibly proclaimed, not just read, but audibly heard. While they heard the gospel, they metaphorically, they stopped their ears 
and obstinately refused the truth. But the Gentiles found God as Savior, and they weren't even looking for him. How'd that happen? The means for the gift of faith in God and the forgiveness and salvation which result is the audible hearing of the word of God. And that is why Paul explained his ministry in these words. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He goes on, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, it's foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, the preaching of God's word, the declaration of it. So what's the conclusion? Here's the conclusion, I think, which we need to really consider. While gospel tracts and Christian literature have their place, most unbelievers come to faith and repentance by the audible hearing of gospel preaching. Think about your own experience. I don't know what it was. So what I'm saying is if you want your kids to be converted, have them in a gospel preaching church. If you want your friend or family member to be saved, convince them to attend church with you. Or give them a CD of a gospel sermon because God most often uses the external hearing to grant the internal response of faith. You should be the vocal, the vocal witness of the gospel, not a silent witness of Christ. Give them the scriptures vocally. They're not reading their Bibles. You Give them the scriptures. You point them to Christ. And remember that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. That's how I was saved. As a kid brought up in a Christian church. Every Sunday. Sitting in that pew. Hearing gospel preaching. And one day. I heard in my heart, not just in my head. And God drew me into his kingdom. That's the way people are generally, generally saved. Do I think they can be saved by a gospel track? Yes, I do. But generally it's through the preaching, the declaration of the word of God. Lord, we pray that you will bless us with the presence of your spirit. Teach us to love it, to love the preaching of your word. And if we have unbelieving family members, and we all do, 
May we do our best to see to it that they have a hearing of the word of God. I remember working the streets of Chicago trying to share the gospel with the homeless people there. There we were from Moody handing out gospel tracts talking to them and so forth. And they would take a few steps and throw the track on the ground. But those that came into the mission and sat and heard the audible preaching of your word, some of them were saved. And they became compatriots of the mission and helping the people on the street themselves because of what God had done through the preaching, the audible hearing of God's word. There is no substitute, Lord, for us to speak. Yes, we can hand the tracts. Yes, we can give out a CD. That would be better. But let us learn how to speak, to give a vocal witness, not a silent witness, but a vocal witness for Christ. To point people to that which they're not about to read, but they might listen. And in the listening, the Spirit of God might grant them faith. Bless our witness and help us, we pray, to live for you in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the red hymnal, number 32. Now this is Communion Sunday, so we're going to take a 10-minute break after we sing. And then when you hear the music, regather, and we'll have the Lord's table. If you're a believer and you have trusted Christ as Savior, you can par participate with us. I like this hymn because it's, it refers to God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. Great is thy faithful. It's number 32 in the red hymnal. Once you find it, will you stand with us?
a 10-minute break. Regather when you hear the piano.